So good morning. <laughs> and it's not even warm in here this time. When my family and I lived in Dallas, we had a neighbor, a neighbor named Bob. Now, Bob was a, a good guy in every sense of the word. He was one of the neighbors you liked to have. Well, he would often come over and we'd sit out on the swing and we would talk. Well, after one conversation about his daughter's education, I mentioned something about Plato. And he looked at me and said, you professors just don't live in the real world. Now, he may have been right. Not many talk about Plato these days, unfortunately. But nevertheless, it stung a little. Because I thought, you know, that's not the first time I've heard that. When I pastored, I often heard things like, well, it must be nice to work in a Christian environment where everybody's nice and kind and not out in the real world like I do. Well, my response I often wanted to give was, well, (laughs) I live with the mess that your real world creates. I never did. I wanted to, but I, I, I have yet to do that. But it has often been on my mind, what do people mean when they talk about life in the real world? Certainly it couldn't be about the lies, the deception, the dishonesty, all of these other things that we think go along with the real world. What does it mean to live in the real world? Paul challenges us with this very idea. He challenges us to transcend the plastic reality of this world and to live in what is really real, to live in God's world. Now, to do so, it takes a transformation in one's thinking. One must come to think Christianly. Now, that's a funny phrase. We don't often hear it used that way. But we need to come to think Christianly. This is what Paul means by renewing your mind. Now, we are back in the the verses that all of us have memorized after being in them so long. But I would like to read them for you one more time. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's go to the Lord as we begin our study this morning and ask for his grace on us. Our Father, we are so very thankful that You are a great God and a good God, and that you have blessed us exceedingly in this world, with those around us, family and friends. You have blessed us unimaginably in Christ, and your word tells us that even now we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, for you have bestowed upon us the wonders, the riches, the very God of the universe. Lord, our minds are humbled at that very thought. For we know ourselves all too well. And we know that even the slightest blessing is more than we deserve. And yet, Lord, you have blessed us not slightly. 
but wonderfully. And so it is with hearts full of gratitude that we open your word to study more about you, this God who has blessed us and who has redeemed us through the very blood of his Son. And so, Lord, as we study, we know we cannot attain it by our own minds, by our own eyes, but by the power of your Spirit. And so we pray that you would grant us eyes that see, ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive to your message. And may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. To think Christianly is a distinct perspective on the world. Now, as I mentioned, this is a strange phrase, and it it came to me out of a book by Harry Blymeyers called The Christian Mind. I would encourage all to read that because it is a wonderful little treatise. Uh, Harry Blymeyers was a student and then a peer of C.S. Lewis. He was a student of his and then taught with him at Cambridge, and he follows very closely in the steps of Lewis. But I want to read to you a quote. It is a lengthy quote, and I know that can be dangerous in a setting like this, but listen along. He says, to think secularly is to think within a frame of reference bounded by the limits of time, by the limits of our life on earth. It is to keep one's calculations rooted in this worldly criteria. To think Christianly is to accept all things with the mind as related, directly or indirectly, to man's eternal destiny as the redeemed and chosen child of God. You can think Christianly or you can think secularly about the most sacred things. There is nothing in our experience, however trivial, worldly, or even evil, which cannot be thought about Christianly. There is likewise nothing in our experience, however sacred, which cannot be thought about secularly. Considered, that is to say, simply in its relation to the passing existence of bodies and psyches in a time-locked universe. Now, he brings to mind what I mentioned last time that I spoke with you all, this distinction between the secular and sacred. And he helps clarify what he means by this. Now, for the Christian, the secular and the sacred is not a matter of mere things, but rather rather of a perspective or a frame of reference, how one understands the origin and the use, the ends to which these things ought to be put. This is the distinction that is often made between the secular and sacred, a perspective. A frame of reference. Now, the temptation is to view things such as art or politics or even literature in terms of either sacred or secular, as though the things somehow themselves were either sacred or secular. But these things in and of themselves are not. It is how we understand them and to what end they are put. That is the frame of reference about which Blemeyer speaks. Paul, through Romans, is calling us to think Christianly about all things that we encounter in life. And it has to do with the frame of reference. Now, oftentimes, I encounter this distinction between the secular and sacred in the most interesting of ways. 
I will often hear it take place, perhaps you have heard it take place, in a conversation that goes something like this. Why are you so concerned about your work? You spend hours and hours dealing with it. Don't you know that stuff is worldly? Why don't you pay more attention to ministry and missions? These are the the Christian things. These are the sacred things. Don't worry about the worldly things. Focus on the Christian things. Now, this all sounds very good, and I often encounter it by the most pious and zealous individuals. But does work necessarily detract from one's spiritual well-being? Not necessarily. Can it? Yes. But does it necessarily? No. One may be concerned with their work because they view it as a means of honoring God. Doing their work with excellence, they see as a means of honoring God. As a matter of fact, the term vocation comes from the Latin term vocatio, which literally means a calling. So that one understands the work they do with their hands or their minds day by day is their calling. The calling God has placed on their life. So they do it with excellence to honor God. Now, this is the calling that God has placed on your life. Paul uses, as we have had expressed to us, uses the imperative. So that what he speaks to us here is a command. It is imperative that we be transformed by the renewing of the mind. So he puts this out to us, not as an option. If it strikes us one day to give up, get up and live Christianly or approach the world Christianly, we'll do so. But if not, well, we'll go about our day by day. Now, this is an obligation on us as Christians to live and think Christianly about our life, our labor, and our loves. Now, I deal with students a lot. I see a few of them here, so I have to be careful about what I say. But students can be the most pragmatic of individuals. They want you to tell them what I need to know and what I need to do to get the A. That's normally what they have in mind. Or B+, as the case may be. Now, none of these students here would do that. They are exceedingly bright and good students. Now, I can hear in my mind a student raising their hand and saying, wouldn't it be easier if you just tell me how I need to think Christianly. So just give me the bottom line. What does it mean to think Christianly about my life? Well, my response would be, I cannot tell you how you are to live and to think Christianly. Because you know your life. You know your labor. You know your loves better than I do. So that you are in a unique position alone in this universe to know best how to honor God with all of these things. Now, notice this is the imperative for all of us, that we are called day in and day out to think Christianly about our labor, the work that we do with our hands, about the entertainment, the things that we allow to come across our eyes and our minds, how we approach all of these things. And this is the adventure of life. It's actually a joy and a challenge to see how this day I can honor God with all that I am and with all that comes across my path. Remember Bly Meyer's comment. 
that even the most trivial things can take on great importance to be thought of Christianly. Now, this is our calling. And to think Christianly about life and love is a distinct perspective. But we come to think Christianly by being renewed. Now, this is what I want us to see. It calls us here, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. And so this transformation takes place precisely by the renewal of one's mind. Now, Paul chooses well this word renewal because it gets to the depth of the meaning. He is talking about the depth of change. Literally, the word means to make new. But it's not to make new temporally. It is not to make new in time. It is to make new in the very nature of the mind. Now, I'm absolutely convinced the scripture teaches there is an intellectual dimension to regeneration and to redemption. On your outlines, you'll see Colossians, the intellectual dimension to regeneration. Colossians 121. It begins with this splendid little word, once. <laughs> once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind as shown by your evil behavior. Now, the once there means what we once were. But he goes on, the context of Colossians, to say, thanks be to God, but now in Christ. Now, the implication is that once we were alienated from God in our minds, there's an intellectual dimension to life to love, to labor. So there is an intellectual dimension to regeneration. We were alienated in our minds as shown by our evil behavior. Now, if we are to be renewed in the very nature of our minds, it presents us a question, doesn't it? <laughs> well, if our minds are to be made new in nature, what were they? What were our minds prior well, Romans 1.28, you see. If our mind is changed in nature, what did it used to be, says the outline. Romans 1.28 says, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, notice the words carefully, retain the knowledge of God, not create, not search out, but to retain what was already there. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so... He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not be done. Now, the term depraved mind literally means worthless mind. Because they chose not to retain the knowledge of God, but exchange it for a lie, they came to the point where they could no longer distinguish truth from falsehood. So that their mind becomes worthless to them. Now, note again the connection between the mind and the actions. As we saw in Colossians, alienated in the mind as shown by your evil behavior. Here they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God handed them over. They have a worthless mind to do what? To do what ought not be done. Now, this will become important a little later. But note the distinction. What was your mind prior to Christ? It was a worthless mind because you could not distinguish truth from falsehood. A worthless mind. Well, now, how does the mind get this way? 
Well, again, on the outline, what was our mind, why was our mind like that? Well, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and I went ahead and added verse 6, says, The God of this age, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. Verse 6 speaks of this God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I included verse 6 intentionally, because I want us to understand that our status as those who are redeemed, those who think Christianly, is not attained by our own intellectual abilities. It would be very easy to think somehow we are smarter than those who are still buying into the lie. That somehow we have attained to this level of knowledge because of our hard work, our diligence. But I want us to see very carefully just how deep this darkness goes. And hopefully... Far from making us look down our noses on those who are still buying into the lie, it will break our hearts of the depth of the ignorance and the blindness that is there. Now, do you hear an echo in Colossians? For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. When did God say that? In Genesis. Right. Now, one of the greatest displays of the power of God is in creation. He speaks And it becomes. He says, let there be light, and light comes. Now, regeneration and redemption is often spoken of in the same parallel terms. So that the very power it took to call light out of darkness, the very power of God, is required to call light or knowledge out of the depths and blindness and the ignorance of a human worthless mind. And it takes no less power to do that. Now, this is why it is very humbling. I deal constantly in the realm of the interaction between theology and philosophy. The philosophy of the world that is often presented to us by the blinded mind. And it often manifests itself in what is called apologetics. And I get very, very troubled when I hear such arrogance come from an apologist, one who claims to speak for God. For when I hear this arrogance, it reminds me that they have forgotten what they once were. And I hope that none of us will do that. We have an enlightened mind, yes. But remember, it is only because of the grace of God that he has called out what was not there. He has enlightened us by his grace. And that is why I think it is important. When we talk about the Christian mind, thinking Christianly, engaging the world, we need to understand that we do so not out of any merit in ourselves, but only by the grace of God. But I want us to come back and see what it is that we were called out of. That worthless mind is worthless because it has been blinded by the God of this age. They've been blinded, so they've bought into this lie. To the extent that they can no longer distinguish truth from falsehood. But they are blinded by the God of this age. Now what question does that raise to mind? What age is this age? 
Well, for this, let's go to Galatians. Galatians 1.4. We see on the outline, Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. The present evil age. Now, this gets to the root of what Paul is teaching us in Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world. The word there in Greek is aeon. What we get our English word, eon. It speaks of an age. An age. Interestingly enough, it's translated in the Latin with the term seculum, where we get the word secular. So he's telling us not to think along the lines of the secular. That frame of reference that is bound by this world. Again, the God of this age has blinded their minds. God of what age? This present evil age. Now, in Scripture, this is contrasted with another age. The age to come. Now, this presents for us the precise tension that you feel every day. We are members of the age to come. But we are living in this present evil age. We are members of the kingdom of God, but we are walking. We are journeying through this kingdom of darkness. And this is what creates for us the dilemma, the tension that we often feel. This tug between the secular and the sacred. It is this precise distinction that Paul points out. Don't be conformed to the world any longer. This present evil age. Because it is precisely this that you have been redeemed out of. You are now members of the kingdom of light. (laughs) Act like it. This is basically what he is telling us. To live according to our new natures. And this is our call to think Christianly. By being renewed. It is a renewal of the mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, What scripture means by mind is often much greater than we commonly attribute to it. It is more than just mere cognition. This is how we use the term. When I say mind, we tend to think of, well, thinking and how our mind works, of reason. But when scripture uses the term mind, it is talking about something much greater, much more comprehensive. It includes the emotions. It includes the will or volitions. It also includes the moral consciousness. Remember the tie-in between knowing and doing? And so, as Paul mentions it here, it might be better for, for our understanding if we use the term disposition. Because that is how comprehensive this term is. So, the renewal of our mind is a renewal of our whole disposition. Our mind, our disposition, will be governed by one of two ages. Either this present evil age or the age to come. So that our whole disposition will be oriented to one or the other. There is no in-between. Our minds are governed by one or two set of legislations. Set of rules. Now... The God of this age has blinded the hearts and minds of those who are living in it. 
Now, this blindedness tends to generate all the isms we encounter. I'm very thankful for Dave Dorst for drawing this out. When he talks about materialism, secularism, and relativism, or humanism, I believe, is one of them, all these isms that we encounter today are expressions or manifestations of this blindedness. It will take different forms, but it is at root the same. So that one's life will be oriented away from God or toward God. Those are the only two options. Now, Paul calls us not to be conformed to the pattern of this age, this present evil age, but to be transformed by the renewing of one's mind, one's whole disposition, so that one's life ought to manifest this difference. Now, this also points to the connection between verse 1 and 2 that we have been looking into. So that the therefore directs verses 1 and 2. Now, the therefore, a reminder, points back to all that has been covered through the sovereignty of God, through the redemption and the blood of Christ. Therefore, because you have been redeemed, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Because that's what a renewed mind does. We are to be constantly being transformed. Constantly learning new ways to think Christianly about everything we encounter. This is the wonder of the Christian life. We also spent a little time in Birmingham. We have moved a relatively large amount for such young people. But in Birmingham, we lived there during the time when Michael Jordan played with the Chicago Bulls. Now, I didn't like basketball, but he drew me into an appreciation of the sport. And I can remember in the playoffs, I don't know if you can, where he, where he hit that unimaginable number of three-pointers uh, in a row. Just, and so I can recall in my mind him running down the sideline going like this, because he literally did not know what was going on, but he had hit eight or nine in a row. Now, that was beauty, to watch this man play basketball. But if you'll remember, it was shortly thereafter that he retired from basketball. And he took up another sport, baseball. Now, you may not remember where he played, but he played for the Birmingham Barons. So we, like most of the golfers that lived in Birmingham, went out to see him play baseball. Now, I was very excited and we went out and we saw this huge beanpole of a guy standing out on the outfield. And then to see him bat was almost comical. You would see him run in the outfield and it would look like an ostrich running. It was just very much out of place. Now, I want you to, to get this contrast in your mind. This is one and the same human being. One is poetry in motion when he is doing what he is designed to do. And yet when he comes out of that and tries to do something for which he was not designed, it looks awkward. How deep does this renewal go? To the very core of our beings. We are renewed in the sense that our minds, our dispositions are new in nature. When we try to live according to the, this present age, we are doing that which is unnatural. 
we're trying to play baseball. When God has made us to soar like Jordan in basketball. We are trying to do that which we were not created to do. And so it looks awkward. It looks out of place. Paul tells us, don't be conformed to this present evil age because you have been transformed through the grace and the mercy of God in Christ. So that now your whole disposition is constantly in transition. So it is a very comprehensive term that he uses. But what might this new mind look like? If the old mind is worthless, what does a new mind look like? Well, for this, I want us to turn to Colossians again. What is the new mind like? Colossians 3.10. I used to blow through this verse concentrating on the new self. Since you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of his creator. Now, I used to focus simply on the new self and what it meant until I started thinking in terms of this knowledge. What is this transformation to take place within us due to our knowledge? It is transformation in the image of God. Now, I want you to hear me on this. Through Christ and having this renewed mind means that in small measure... Our thinking is patterned along the very lines of God's thinking. So that we bear within us the image of God in our minds. To the extent that in Corinthians he says, we have the mind of Christ. Now that's a rather amazing thing. As a matter of fact, I want to go to Corinthians. It was not on the outline because it was too long. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians. You'll see it noted, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Beginning with verse 6. Where we see again this contrast. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age. Or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Now, if you skip down, all of this is good, but for the sake of time, skip down to verse 10. But God, who has revealed it to us by his Spirit, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. Now, again, I want us to think a little bit about this. We've seen that our minds are being transformed into the very image of God, which deals with our understanding of all that is around us. But here in this passage, we have... A clarification of our understanding of the ultimate reality of God himself. No one knows the spirit of a man. No one knows the thoughts of a man, but that spirit within the man. So I can't look out at you and I can't tell what you're thinking. I tell my kids I can, so don't let them know I can. 
But I can't look out and tell your thoughts. But you know. You know your thoughts. You know all that is going on within your mind. Now, Paul uses this as an illustration that no one knows the mind of God. No one knows the thoughts of God, but the Spirit of God. Now, what does the Spirit know of God? Everything. For the Spirit is God. Now, note the next step. We have not been given the Spirit of this world, but the very Spirit of God. Do you see how absolutely profound this is? That we have access to the very mind of God by the presence of the Spirit of God within our hearts and minds. Do you want to know God? The Spirit of God, when you are redeemed, when you are regenerate, lives within you to teach you all there is to know about God. Now, that is an amazing thing. Will we know all of God that the Spirit knows? (laughs) No. For we are still finite in our minds. So we will not know God exhaustively, but we will know God truly. This is a wonderful thing. For those who have been redeemed by God stand in awe and wonder of Him. And desire to know this God who would save us. And He has placed within us the Spirit of God to teach us. To transform our minds so that we can know. When I talk about learning to think Christianly about your life, love, and labor, and how I'm not the one that that can help you, thanks be to God, we're not left to our own devices to try to hammer it out. But we have the very Spirit of God within us to teach us, to instruct us, and to shape our lives. Now, that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. So, to think Christianly is a distinct view of the world, which comes only by being transformed or by being renewed. And this mind renewal is comprehensive. But what does that change in our view of the world? What kind of perspective or frame and reference ought we to have as Christians? Now, I want to move into something ever so briefly called the Christian worldview. Now, I tend to teach this over 16 weeks. Okay? So settle in. Get comfortable. Just kidding. <laughs> so we'll cover it ever so briefly, leaving out large chunks that I would rather not. But I want to give you a certain insight to what it means to think Christianly about the world. Because there are certain very, very important elements that are transformed when we come to view life and reality through the Christian frame. Because remember, there are only two ages. This present evil age and the age to come. One or two ways of viewing the world. Now, both have produced nuances in their views. So that one, out of the Reformed Christian view, the Reformed view would not necessarily view things in the exact same manner, but they would be similar. So it is true that a humanist may view things differently than a materialist. But by and large, there's only two ways of viewing the world. And when we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind, we view things differently. 
This view begins with what is called the ultimate concern. For the Christians, we understand that to be God. An ultimate concern, let me give you a brief definition. An ultimate concern is that for which all other things are sought. It is the true end of all of life. Now, if a humanist were to have an ultimate concern, it would probably revolve around humanity. Do you see how that works? An ultimate concern. Things would begin and end with that ultimate concern. Now, for Christians, we don't view the world in that way. Our ultimate concern, the origin and the end of all things that we do, is God. Now, again, on your outline, you'll see we will move really, really quickly through several of these things. First, God is eternal. We view God to be outside of time. Now, you'll see several verses here. Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's communicated the two names that we understand of God, Yahweh, I am that I am but also the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and end of all things. Now, this is currently a rather contentious point within Christendom itself. What is called the openness of God is beginning to wrestle with this precise point. But throughout the history of Christendom, God has been understood to be outside of time. Now, why is this important? Well, God does not know succession of moments. God is not confined to space. So that God does not learn or progress like we do. When God is outside of time, he knows all things, which we'll get to in a moment, immediately. Even the future. Which is a very, very important point. But also, if he does not know the succession of time, or the flux of space confining of uh, spatial dimensions then God does not undergo change. God is stable. Theologically, it is called immutability. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Which means that God is trustworthy. Now, on our best days, we want to be. But God is. Now, that is very, very important. God is eternal. God is also, as I mentioned, omniscient, which means basically he knows all things. The hidden, deep things of our hearts, things that were, things that will be. He knows all things. You see here again, 1 John 3.20, For God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. Isaiah 46.10, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Now, again, you can go to Isaiah 40, 13 and 14 also to see this taught. God knows all things. He knows them immediately. Now, the third point, and again, there's a lot of these, but the the three I'll focus on is that God is personal. God isn't some force or energy. He is a personal being. We know him as one in essence, three in person. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now, James Sire, who is another author I would recommend, states he has two basic characteristics of personality. One is self-reflection. Two is self-determination. He knows himself to be, 
And he is an agent of action. He is not compelled by anything external to himself, but can freely determine what he wishes and act as he chooses. That's also communicated in the verse in Isaiah that I mentioned. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that pleases me. Now, what we see in relation to all of these is God's greatness. The scripture also clearly teaches that God is good. As a matter of fact, what is that childhood prayer? God is good. God is great. It's a pretty good summary of theology. God is good. As uh, Pastor Cranshaw has been pointing out, this thrice holy God means his complete holiness. In the sense, both ontologically, that he is distinct, he is completely other than we are. And that he is eternal, we're temporal, he is infinite, we're finite. But it is also a perfection, a completion of goodness. Now I want you to think for a moment why that's important. Can you think of a God who knows all things, who is all-powerful, who would not be good? That would be a very scary thing. But then again, if he was not all-good... Could he be all-knowing and all-powerful? These two things are corollary to one another. They're correlated. God is great and God is good. Now this brings us to the second element where the Christian worldview differs from others. In the view of the world. Or excuse me, in the view of what we know. Now I ask a very silly question. I think it's on the outline. (laughs) Yes. How do you know that you were born? Right now, after dabbling so long in philosophy, you have to wonder about, you have to grant latitude, I guess, to a skewed mind. And so skewed minds present skewed questions. Sounds very silly, but how do you know you were born? Well, I'm here, aren't I? Well, yeah, but you could have been hatched. Now, I don't want to delve off too far afield, but it's a very important ontological question. How do you know you were here? How do you know you were born? Well, basically, it boils down to I was told (laughs) that I was born, and I understand it, and now I see the process, which confirms what I was told. Now, the important element of this is that we accept a great deal of our knowledge and authority. But what authority do we accept it upon? Is it by our senses? So I see, I hear... I feel, I can experiment and reduplicate, therefore I have knowledge. Is it our reason? On what authority do we accept things we claim to know? And is that authority substantiated? And I want us to read a verse here. Again, there's a whole lot that I have to leave out. But John 3.13 says, I have spoken to you, and this is Jesus speaking, I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So what Jesus tells us is what he knows firsthand. And he comes to tell us. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist goes on to say, He who accepts his testimony proves God trustworthy. When one receives the testimony of Jesus, we have proven God 
trustworthy. Because we have received his message as true. We accept what we know scripturally based on the authority of God. Because he is the creator of all, because he does know all, because he is good, what he gives us and speaks to us is a suitable basis for knowledge. It creates for us a grid or a foundation by which we know all of the things. We have a stable criterion by which we can know. Now, this changes the way we understand the world. By the way, for a Christian... Truth is based in a person. Truth is an extension of the character, being, and the nature of God. Now, when we come to the world, we understand the created universe to have been created by this personal, great and good God. Now, we see in Psalm 19.1 some of my favorite verses. In verse 1 alone, we read, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Creation comes from a creator. It is by God. And it bears forth his goodness. Declares his glory. So as we encounter things day by day in this world, we are coming to encounter the very character of God that is impressed upon his creation. Now, We understand that the goodness of creation has been darkened by sin. Through the fall of God, all of creation has been placed in bondage, Romans tells us. So that now it longs for the adoption of God's Son, so that it will be released. Though it is darkened, it is not destroyed. There is a goodness in God's world that I think sometimes we sell short. Now, how many of you have seen the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset? Or a late afternoon in the fall, where you sit and you look on the mountains and you think, goodness, this is a beautiful, beautiful world. Now, this is the world in bondage. Imagine a world set free. It is absolutely amazing. And we should stand rightly in awe of God as we encounter the world, as we encounter that which is around us. This is why I think it is important to understand that secular and sacred is not a matter of things. For this is God's world. It is good. It is darkened by sin. But it is good. And the Christian thinking Christian, one who thinks Christianly, sees and understands it as the good creation of God. Fallen corrupt, yes, by sin, but not destroyed. It changes the way we view things. It also creates a basis for science. Now, this is not new to me, but it is in the history of Christian thought that the orderly universe, when understood to be a reflection of God's mind, bids us forth to study so that we can know God's mind. There is a stable basis for knowledge in the sciences. This often comes under what is called common grace. God gives grace of the human intellect to investigate his world and discover wonderful things. I read physics 
not very well, <laughs> but I read it, and I am amazed at what is brought forth and the wonder of God's universe. God has created a suitable universe that we can investigate and study, and this gives us a basis for scientific knowledge. And what is true here is not separate from God, because it is God's world, empowering God's creation to study it. And we come to this wonderful, wonderful phrase that I hope embeds deeply in your mind, that all truth is God's truth, for this very reason. Now, our hour is going late. I told you I have 16 weeks normally to use this stuff. The next area in which we differ is in our understanding of human nature. Because all things are created by God, humans are no exception. They are created magnificent and wonderful and yet fallen. This is the dilemma of humanity. Noble and ignoble, all in one set of skin. Now, when we view humans, we cannot, as Christians, view them as merely human. Or as a matter of a theme, a skeleton, muscles. We can no longer view them in a worldly way, as Paul says. In 2 Corinthians 5.16, we read, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We can't view them by those things which distinguish us bodily or physically. If we recall the great declaration of Colossians, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, barbarian, Scythian, all of these things disintegrate when we see them in Christ, when we understand them from an eternal perspective. C.S. Lewis, in a, a quite remarkable work called The Weight of Glory, gives us a phenomenal understanding, a glimpse of this. Lewis says, It's a serious thing to remember that the dullest, most in, uninteresting person you talk, talk with may one day be a creature which... If you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship, or else a horror, a corruption, as which you would now meet only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection, circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. These are the people you work with. Understood from an eternal perspective. Now, finally, the Christian's view of morality is different. Because God is good. His call for us to live accordingly becomes our moral standard. The summary phrase I give uh, of Christian morality is person-centered, principle-guided. Person-centered in that the first and foremost obligation we have is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. That does not change. Person-centered because we serve a personal God. But there's an extension to this, isn't it? To love our neighbor as ourself. These two things are tied in so that the Christian morality is person-centered, but principle-guided. 
We aren't left to our own devices in a, a Joseph Fletcher-esque situational ethic. What do you do in each situation? Do the loving thing. <laughs> Great. What in the world does that look like? We are given principles. What does it mean to love one's neighbor? Now, we follow the guiding and leading of the Holy Spirit, but we have principles that guide our reaction so that we have a distinct view of morality because we understand human nature in a certain way. We understand the world in a certain way. We have knowledge and we understand truth in a certain way because we understand God in a certain way. These are perspectives of a renewed mind, but they're also confessions of a mind in process. I want us to note this. He gives you the imperative. This must be done. But he also puts it in the present tense in the sense that it is an ongoing process. Be transformed. It is also in the passive as Pastor Cranshaw notes, that we are to be transformed. We're not at this by ourselves. You may think, how do I think Christianly about a boss that's a real jerk? How do I do that? Well, you're not left to your own devices to do that. It is the wonder of our calling. Something else I haven't pointed out. Paul uses the plural here. Be renewed in your mind. And we tend to think of that as an individual. But you know what? Paul is not speaking simply to you as an individual, but to you collectively. So that we, one another, bear responsibility for forwarding one another. And you know what? We encourage one another. When I see somebody learning to love God with all they are, I stand in awe of God because I know it's not simply them. And I certainly know it's not me rooting them on. It is the power of God. But as I see the transformation take place, I stand in awe of God. This is our calling. And as we see the power of God demonstrated in the application of the redemption in our lives of the blood of Jesus Christ, and we see it applied to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are encouraged. We are encouraged to think Christianly. And you know what? This is life in the real world. Let's bow for a word of prayer.